Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring more by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. This Wonder Tour takes us back to The Hobbit, an unexpected journey for part two. In part one, we focused on how to lead like Gandalf. We talked about how Gandalf is busy working on a symphony. Now, a symphony requires all the different players with all the different skill sets to come into alignment, to work together in unison to build order and to build that beautiful music. Now we want to talk about Bilbo. So Bilbo, in this example, is a lot like most of us. We're individual players. We might have some musical skills to use the symphony metaphor, but we find Bilbo in a small world. He starts out in the Shire and he doesn't have a lot of belief in himself. He knows how to operate within this small world that he finds himself in, but when he's posed with an opportunity to step out into this larger world, this larger conflict, he doesn't quite see the reason that he needs to be involved or how he can make an impact. We want to look at this unexpected journey for Bilbo as a journey of self-belief. How he builds up gradually that belief in himself, that he can make an impact in this overall cause, that he can play an important part in that symphony metaphor, and how it interacts with other people's beliefs. Because his interaction with the dwarves, and even with Gandalf, as Gandalf says, perhaps because I am afraid and he gives me courage about Bilbo. So Bilbo has this super important role to play in our central metaphor of the symphony here. And we want to understand you know, when we're Bilbo, because we're Bilbo every single day, how do we build up the belief? How do we step outside of that small world and be a part of the larger purpose? Welcome to Wonder Tour. All right. Welcome back, Wanderers. I'm Brian. I'm back here with Drew. We're in uh, The Hobbit Unexpected Journey Part 2, and we're going to talk about Bilbo. I'm going to pick it up right where you left off there, Drew. Let's just talk about that experience of being Bilbo, of being comfortable in your small world with your package of skills and with your familiar environment and getting thrust into a new role, maybe even just being offered the new role where it's you're surrounded by people who maybe have a daunting packages of skills that you're not familiar with. They're bought into a mission that you're not necessarily aligned with or even necessarily aware of. What's that experience like? Have you ever have you ever had that? It's a classic starting a job or joining a new group kind of a situation. Can you empathize with Bilbo's frame of mind here? Yeah, it's a classic hero's journey like we talked about in part one. And I think we all go through it many, many, many times over the course of our lives. The easiest example, I think, is when you're in an entry-level job. Your first position, given that you have some level of understanding, generally, you know, maybe you went through some training or college or whatever, you know, you get to the point where, where you're expected to act somewhat autonomously in a role, and you're like, I don't know if I can do this. You can't quite see how all the models and the building blocks that you've been taught work together in order to be able to solve problems. And so you're definitely not at the top of the totem pole. You're in no position to command resources or anything like that, much like Bilbo, for all intents and purposes, at the bottom of the totem pole. <laughs> the dwarves certainly consider him at the bottom of the totem pole when the journey starts out. Right. Gandalf doesn't, but the dwarves do. And I think to empathize with that situation, like it's okay to be Bilbo. It's okay to act like Bilbo and not want to sign the contract at first. And as he's reading it, he's like reading all the different ways that he could die. And he's 
you know, he, he is interested in the money and the reward and stuff, but that's not interesting enough to be able to convince the Hobbit from the Shire to go out into the bigger world. He needs a different mission. He needs a different purpose than just gaining riches because he's already pretty satisfied and comfortable in his current state in the Shire. So I think that's one thing that we don't want to miss when we're empathizing with being a hobbit is the hobbits are very comfortable in the Shire. <laughs> right. Well, and the hobbits, like their defining characteristic is that comfort, right? Is that the sense of tradition, the sense of place, the sense of community. It's very easy to get comfortable in your small world. And the way they portray Bilbo, like his house is charming and the larder, you know, the pantry is full and he's got all this, you know, charming little knickknacks hanging around and he's quite satisfied. Like he's just hanging out on his front porch, smoking a pipe when Gandalf walks by. Like it's not like he's he doesn't appear very stressed by his current life. You know, and, and so we contrast that with this sense of adventure, right? And that's the obvious trade-off, right? Is that by definition, you can't have an adventure without doing something uncomfortable. You can't have an adventure without leaving behind something that you value or your comfortable surroundings, right? It's not, you know, sitting on your couch playing a video game about an adventure is fun, but it's not actually an adventure. Right. It's not. It's not right, talking you know. about an adventure or dreaming about an adventure. Is uh, it's, It can have some adventure elements to it, but it is not going on that adventure. It, it has no discomfort associated with it. So maybe a good example here uh, from a personal perspective is serving, right? Service. When we yeah. go to serve people, it's almost always uncomfortable. Number one, because you're a hobbit in that situation. You're generally like the lowest person on the totem pole when you're serving people on purpose. You're putting yourself in that position where you're mm -hmm. saying, I am the servant. What can I do to help you? So having, you know, I always like to bring in serving the homeless analogies, since that's where a lot of my service experience is. When you're bringing new people in to a homeless ministry, new volunteers is very uncomfortable. It is like palpable how much discomfort that people have when they are having to probably for the first time, most people have direct interactions with homeless people where you're not trying to, you know, uh, trying to ward your way through the conversation and just kind of get on to with the rest of your day. You have to actually enter that discomfort and go on an unexpected journey that you don't know where it's ending almost ever. And that is super, super challenging because at first your brain wants you to not do that. Your brain's like, oh, okay, we'll just have a transaction with this person because that's what I'm comfortable with. And I think that's how Bilbo kind of starts out. He's like at this level of, well, you can come into my house, but then you need to leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's there's there's a couple good things in there. Right. One of the things you said, just like trying to lead in a volunteer organization or trying to organize a volunteer organization is one of the most difficult leadership tasks. Right. Because everybody is literally there voluntarily and you have no authority. So so that's a, that's a challenge for motivating and pointing people in the right direction. But then by definition, the thing that you're doing is uncomfortable. And so you also have to deal with the how do I develop skills to be good in this environment and how do I just be with the fact that I'm going to be incompetent for a while and hold myself accountable to get better, but not give up in disgust or fear. You know, my practical real world example right now is quite different, but I'm you know, a middle aged person who's back in grad school. It is kind of a like I had a very comfortable, familiar world in an environment where I was good at some things. And now I'm in an environment where I'm surrounded by a lot of people that are moving really fast and really good at what they do. <laughs> you know, the, the path is fairly clear. So that's good. At least I know where I'm going. I've got a map, but I'm not necessarily the best at anything in my environment. And I'm very much not at the level of, you know, kind of comfort and familiarity and flow with every day where I was a year or two ago. We covered kind of the two halves of the Hobbit scenario, right? At least that I can see the one half is the servant piece of it. 
Because, like, The Hobbit is kind of lowest on the totem pole. And then the other half, like you were talking about, is the lack of knowledge curve, where you're just, The Hobbit knows nothing of the bigger world, basically, and is having to get dropped into this bigger world, and everybody else knows a lot more and is, like, constantly, like, yeah, you don't get it, you don't know how to fight orcs, you don't know how to, you know. Yeah, so he's, yeah, so he's, so, you know, his new com- his new company is... Gandalf, who is very impressive and a little bit inscrutable and obviously quite powerful, right? And then a whole bunch of dwarves who have a charismatic leader and a very clear mission statement. They're quite a bit older and they've got their own packages of skills. They've got their own way of looking at the world and they've got this whole weight of history on them. Of our, our people has lost their place and we have to recover it and we have to go fight the dragon. And Bilbo's like, why am I even here, right? So we see that throughout the first chunk of the movie. Like he waffles on even going. He has enough self-knowledge to recognize that he's going to regret it if he doesn't change something. So he does go on the adventure. He runs out the door, signs the contract, gets on the pony. But then he's immediately uncomfortable. Like, I'm allergic to the horse, and I forgot my handkerchief, and we have to go back. And then it's raining, and everybody's yelling at me. You know, And they were betting that I wasn't going to go. Like this, He's just super out of place, and he knows it. And he's completely unclear how he's going to be able to contribute, even though he's there. So in our terminology of hope and belief, right, he has hope. He's like, oh, I'm going to get to go on an adventure. I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to feel like I, you know, stepped out of my comfort zone. But he doesn't actually have very much belief, right? Like Gandalf thinks I should be here, so I guess maybe it's okay. But actually, I have no idea how I'm going to contribute. These people don't seem to like me very much. I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. And they play it for great comedy. But he goes through a lot of discomfort in the first half of the movie here. He's kind of operating off of a pass through hope from Gandalf primarily because he has a relationship of trust with Gandalf to some extent. I mean, hence why he allows everybody into his house and stuff like that. It's strictly because he has that relationship with Gandalf and he's allowing Gandalf's hope to roll over his consciousness. <laughs> That's a very wonderer way of thinking about it, but he is. And he doesn't have his own hope and belief necessarily. He's just latching on to what Gandalf's hope and belief is. And that's probably okay. And I think a lot of us experience that when we're new in a space, like you were just talking about, Brian, or like I was talking about when you have new volunteers in a service uh, or whatever like that, right? And just think about it this way. How old do we think Bilbo is? And you can take this in terms of experience. So don't hear this as a wanderer in terms of age. We're talking experience. But how old do you think Bilbo is? Maybe late 20s? Canonically, I think he's 33, which is basically just out of his teens in, in Hobbit terminology. There you go. Exactly. Right. And and we see that Bilbo is, I don't know, you'll probably remember how old he is in the fellowship. Yeah, he's a he's 111. He's 111. There you go. So he's 111 there. And hobbits don't live that much longer than that. They might yeah, live well, a little bit longer. He's extraordinarily than long lived at that point. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and think about how old Gandalf is. We do know that Gandalf is thousands of years old. We're not sure exactly how long. We're not sure that he wasn't a being that existed in Valinor before he came to Middle Earth. I don't want to go down another Silmarillion rabbit hole, but. In fact, we are encouraged to believe that he probably was a being that existed in Valinor and before he just, came over just, to Middle-earth. You're just getting started on Rings of Power, so we'll we'll, we'll come back to that one later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely, hopefully, come back to that one later. Uh, the dwarves, we don't know exactly how old they are, but we know dwarves live to be three to five hundred years old easily. So the dwarves are much older than men and hobbits in Lord of the Rings. They're not as old as elves or as, you know, godlike beings like Gandalf necessarily, but they are old. And so they have so much experience. And just imagine walking into that room with thousands of years of experience and you have 33. (laughs) And you also have part of the reason that he lets them into his house is just because he's nice. Like, he's not willing to be a jerk and say, get the heck out of my house, right? He's at least not forcefully enough to get a dwarf off of his chair. 
but also just they are so much clearer in their resolve. They're so much firmer in their mission statement, right? Is that they all are very confident in the direction that they're heading. You know, even if it's even if they go to their deaths, whatever, they've got these sort of crystalline visions of the future. And he's very much not that way. Like he's comfortable. He was like, oh, I can keep doing the thing I can do. I mean, maybe I'll go on an adventure. But he doesn't really have strong opinions about where he's going or why or what the correct order of the rest of the world outside of himself is. And so he kind of gets dragged along by the current of all of these strong personalities around him. And it does take him a little while to figure out kind of who he is and what he can contribute here. And that takes us to our moment. Let's get to the mountaintop here, Brian. Tell us about the troll scene. So this is, just rewatching the movie recently, this scene is a lot longer than it needs to be. Like, it's a thing that's taken from the book. There's some real fun to it, but it's also, as much of this movie, it's quite overwrought and a little bit ridiculous. But one of the things we see here is that this is sort of the first time in the arc where Bilbo is uncomfortable and trying to figure out how to fit in. And they have their first real challenge. The trolls show up and steal their horses. And the two of the dwarves sort of talk Bilbo into going and trying to sneak around and rescue the horses. Hey, you're really small. They, he won't notice you. Why don't you go go be a thief? Go be the burglar. Get our horses back. This is a pretty big challenge. He's, the trolls are really scary. He's got he's to go sort of sneak around the edges of the campfire and try to make this thing happen. It goes spectacularly wrong. The trolls find him. All the dwarves show up. There's a battle scene. Bilbo gets captured. All the dwarves get captured. So then he's got a second opportunity to step up when they're all getting about to get roasted over the fire and he hears them let slip that they have to finish up before dawn because the sunlight will turn him into stone. But so he starts stalling for time. He jumps up wrapped up in a burlap sap and he just starts riffing, right? He's just like literally just stalling for time. And he's figured out that the one thing that he brings to the table here is he's got this gift of gap. He's pretty clever and he's a little bit devious and the trolls are super dumb. And so he's able to sort of stall for time until Gandalf can show up and save them with, by letting the sunlight in. It's amped up to 12. It's a ridiculous scene, but it's our first moment where Bilbo goes from like, why am I even here to, I'm going to try to help this team out, right? It leverages his kindness. He's like, well, that's my pony. I liked my pony. I want to get my pony back, right? It leverages his wanting to please people, wanting to help the dwarves and trying to use what he does have, his gifts, you know, his ability to be quiet and his ability to sneak around, but then also his ability to just sort of be charming and colorful and a little bit distracting and indirect with his speech and just sort of lead them on a little merry chase long enough to figure out what the next step's going to be. So he doesn't really have a plan, but he starts to believe in himself enough that like nobody else is going to solve this problem. So I'm going to jump up and just start winging it until some, a solution presents itself. Yeah, and we'd come to know more about Bilbo. I mean, he's one of the central characters throughout all of this. So we do get to learn a lot more about him than we do in just the unexpected journey. And one thing we start to learn about Bilbo is he is bold. He is eccentric. Bilbo is extremely eccentric. That is one of his primary characteristics. And so while he is a down-to-earth hobbit, he has this eccentric traits, and he's not really had to leverage them before. And we've all known people who leverage including probably myself, who leverage that trait in the wrong way sometimes, and it can be off-putting to other people. And even Bilbo is off-putting sometimes to other people. But in this scenario, he's learning to kind of leverage that eccentricity as a filibuster. He's like, I can speak eloquently. You know, I can try to draw this conversation out and I can kind of weave this narrative for these trolls, even yeah. though I don't really know where it's going. And I'm just going to stand up straight and puff out my chest, even though I'm so much smaller than they are. And I'm in a bag right now, but I'm just going to step into this role and just play this character. 
okay, and this is just occurring to me now, it's kind of crystallizing for me, but part of the reason that he's good at that is because he's actually very sympathetic. He's very insightful. That turns out to be his superpower kind of throughout this movie. It's not just that he distracts the trolls by talking to them. He senses that, oh, the head troll's really about the quality of the food, so I'm going to get him on that. Like, I'm going to get him up. You don't want to eat them like this. Sage is not going to be enough to cover this flavor. Like, you got to do all these other things, right? So he understands that they have a weakness because he understands kind of what they want. This mountaintop moment leads to the signature realization moment at the end of the movie where he has the opportunity to, but maybe, as you said, the Twin Peaks version of signatures at the end of the movie, where he first has the opportunity to trick Gollum, and he does. He has the opportunity to kill Gollum, and he doesn't. He has sympathy. He, he recognizes that this is, you know, maybe not good for his character. And then he walks back up to the dwarves, still invisible, and hears them sort of dishing on him about how he doesn't belong, and he's the opportunity to walk away from them, and he doesn't. And his, you know, his big moment at the end is... I have a home. You guys have lost your home. I'll, I'll help you get it back if I can. The motivation that he finds is sympathetic. And the way he expresses is, I understand what you want, and therefore I can buy into your mission. He does it again in the next movie when he's with the dragon. His whole gift of gab is used to like, oh, the great and terrible. Like, this is must be what you want. Oh, this is, must be what you're thinking. Like, he's able to engage people. He's able to understand their points of view very quickly and to leverage that into sort of directing the conversation the way he wants to go. I haven't really thought about it in that way, but this ridiculous troll scene is sort of the first time where we see that. Just the ability to sympathize with somebody, even somebody that has no reason to listen to you at all, can be really powerful. Starting by leveraging your gifts is really important, I think. Recognizing and leveraging them, and that's kind of what we've been hitting on here. Now I want to get into more of the mechanics of hope and belief. We're in the middle of this hope and belief series, and we have this really good tension going on with Bilbo. So I want to try to break down a working model of hope and belief. Let me bring in a couple things that we've talked about previously here. We have some working definitions of hope and belief. So we have hope is having a purpose to hold on to, and that can be at many different levels and densities and specificities and stuff like that. And it generally is at a higher level. And then we have belief, which we called having a strong conviction on something you can't necessarily confirm or see. And so I think belief is pretty obvious in some ways and not obvious in other ways here, where the dwarves have this strong belief that if they can take back the mountain, if they can defeat Smog, that will achieve whatever their vision is for flourishing, which is essentially recapturing their homeland. Mm. Now, I think the key here is, since we're in this episode all about Bilbo, how does Bilbo's journey, let's just look at the unexpected journey. How does hope and belief kind of develop across this journey? Because we've talked about how hope is this thing you start out with at the highest of levels. And then as it kind of goes down lower, you can build up more hope through the gradual development of belief in more tangible things like how we're like the how. Well, yeah, so Bilbo starts with the most tenuous version of hope, right? He's like, I, I'm going to go on this adventure and it'll probably be better. Like, he has no idea what he's getting into. He has no specific thing that he's trying to accomplish other than to have a new experience. And maybe, you know, okay, I guess I, I hope that Gandalf knows what he's doing putting me into this thing, right? That's about the level he's operating at. Gandalf has much more of belief, right? I believe that... Bilbo can be an asset to this team. I believe that Bilbo could grow into a more effective person in the world than he is if he stays in his in his small world. So he's got that pull, but Bilbo himself doesn't really have anything more than a very vague hope at the start. 
And so why we picked the the one mountaintop moment for this episode was that that's the first point where Bilbo's vague hope starts to crystallize into a belief of I can help what I know how to do, who I am, what I bring to the table may be of use. And then it gets stronger and stronger as the as the movie goes along. We have the interaction with Gollum. We have the final interactions with Thorin. We have Bilbo standing up for Thorin at the very end. So he's starting to believe that he can contribute in the ways that he already knows and even in some ways that are super uncomfortable. He's really starting to flower there. And the interesting thing that we see is that because he starts to build self-belief, then he buys into the larger mission. He buys into the dwarf's belief that they can find a home. He has to have his own self-confidence first before he can really attach to their mission. He has to feel like he belongs. But what he attaches to is their mission, is not actually them personally. And so what we see through the rest of this following movie's arc, right, is that even when Thorin sort of loses track of the goal and goes off, you know, becomes very self-focused, Bilbo's still attached to that mission. Like he bought into, oh, the dwarves should have a home and we should have this, you know, we should get back to the symphony. We should build the garden. We should have harmony and take care of our individual people. And even when Thorin loses track of that, Bilbo still kind of gets the core. Oh, that's really good. And so it's almost like there is a like we have to go back and forth investing in hope and belief and that it's kind of like you can oscillate back and forth between the two. And you, you usually have to start with some sort of hope. Otherwise, there's not a lot of reason for you to build up some belief. It's like you're raising the water level a little bit once you start building that belief. You're like, okay, like the hope is going up, but you almost needed some hope to anchor to in order to get started. And in this scenario, the hope to anchor to was Gandalf's hope. Gandalf has this hope for a better world. He has this vision for flourishing. And while he hasn't espoused it all to the team and to Bilbo and stuff like that, through Bilbo's interactions with Gandalf, he has come to trust that Gandalf's hope is founded in something. And so he says, okay, maybe I can go on this journey and maybe along the way I will find out some of what that hope is founded on. Yeah, it's compellingly drawn and it's got a lot of these cool elements, but starting from the point of not even having self-confidence, starting from the point of not even knowing what the mission is, we get to see a lot of those elements build up of the vague hope turning into first some self-confidence and self-belief and then into the ability to attach to the mission and then into the ability to go beyond what you thought you were capable of. Okay, so we have a little bit of the hope part figured out. We're saying that there's a little bit of mystery. I almost want to use mystery instead of vagueness because vagueness, mm -hmm. vagueness insinuates that there might not be a lot underneath. And I think mystery insinuates that there is something underneath of it. It's just I can't quite see it now. And I'm interested to learn more. The only way to learn more is to progress into the future. Yeah, well, and I think that the the Gandalf version of that is not that it's a mystery of we haven't discovered the details yet. Is The details are not there yet. Like This is the right direction and the details will resolve as we go. It's not that we're trying to uncover the existing structure. It's that the structure is not yet written and we have the opportunity to push it in a direction we want to go. That's really good. So the the hope has this mystery and future element to it. And right. the that's where belief really comes in is belief starts to fill in the picture of hope because hope. I mean, Brian, what would hope be if there wasn't some level of mystery to it? It would just be knowledge. <laughs> right. Well, and that's and it's an element of it, I would suggest, is openness to possibility. Right. Like hope isn't necessarily like this is definitely out there and I just need to get there. Hope is this could potentially be out there or I could potentially create it out there. Mm -hmm. right? And that's that future is not yet written piece that is, I think, essential for all of this. Like you say, if there was if it was fixed and destined and I just need to walk the past, well, that's not very 
there's not a lot of suspense there. There's not a lot of reward there. So how might we update this working definition of hope to incorporate some of that? We said it's having a purpose to hold on to, and I, I want to incorporate some level of the mystery and potential that we've been talking about here. Mm hmm I would say having a purpose to hold on to with potential to make an impact or with potential to, I don't know how to. Yeah. Does it, I don't know. I'm, is purpose making it too focused for us? Is it more about having a, having a direction or having a, an aspiration for the future? It's clearly forward looking. Yeah. I think aspiration is a good word to use there. Having an aspiration for the future to hold on to. Even without, you know. Yeah. Without being able to see it, it in granularity, right? It's like you, you have this, an aspiration inherently doesn't have granularity to it. It's more of a feeling. It's more of a thought, it's a dream. It's yeah. Yeah, this is the way we want to go, right? I want to have an adventure. I want to have a world where the races live in harmony. That's hope level. And like you say, I think your definition of belief is then you have a strong conviction, even if you still can't see it, is like, this is definitely the action that I should take to move in that direction. An action I should take, that's that's still solid. Yeah, so belief ties to hope in the way that belief is linking to that aspiration of something that you can't necessarily confirm or see. Yeah, belief crystallizes what sorts of actions you should take to fulfill your hopes. Okay, so then how do we see Bilbo and the team building belief throughout this journey? Because he starts out with maybe 10% belief, and he's just inheriting that belief from Gandalf. And I think one of the first ways that we see the building of belief, and we're going back to Gandalf doing a little bit of this building, but I have seen this work in practice. And it cannot be faked. It must be genuine. But I want to point out that belief has more power than we give it credit for. So there's a moment here where at the beginning, they're trying to convince Bilbo to join the team. They're wondering what a burglar even is and why he's a part of this team. And Gandalf kind of breaks this up and he goes his silent and he's like, he's got a great deal to offer more than any of you know, even himself. Gandalf has this ability to speak belief into existence and a true magnanimous leader. And there are magnanimous leaders that I have run across have this ability. When you are mature and magnanimous, and even before then, I think you can have this trait, but that is a trait you have to have. The ability to speak belief into existence and have it happen. And it's a weird thing, and it's not a physical thing, and you can debate it, and, and we can contradict each other or whatnot on this. But me personally, I have a strong conviction that that works and that that in the right scenario with the right level of wisdom is effective. Yeah, no, that's a good example. That's a that's a great moment where he very much affects a change in the world just by force of will. And some of that is in the way he expresses it and his utter conviction that this is a thing. And some of that is in the gravitas that he carries with him, right? Because he is Gandalf, because he has been successful, because he has demonstrated power or demonstrated wisdom in the past. Then when he says, this is really a thing that you should pay attention to, you need to have that, you need to carry some of that weight one way or the other. Like either you have to have a really compelling logical argument or you have to have personal credibility and on top of the delivery, on top of the ability to speak it with such confidence. Yeah, and Bilbo, there's no way he's signing that contract if Gandalf doesn't have that moment. We didn't do a what if here, but that could have been Right. Now, what if almost, right? There's no way he's coming back and saying, I signed the contract unless Gandalf in his booming voice tells the team, I believe in Bilbo and you should believe in Bilbo. He has something to offer that you all don't realize. And so I've tried to emulate this only in very specific scenarios. You don't want to overutilize that tactic, but you can utilize this tactic from time to time when the team or an individual really needs it. 
say, listen, I'm going to leverage the trust that you've built up in me, the weight that I have, and I'm going to lay it on the table for you right now. You can do this. We need to work together. We need to believe in each other and we need to move forward. And that's essentially what he's saying right there. And it shuts everybody up and it only works again in a certain scenario. But that is one tactic to build belief. And it's almost a foundational tactic to build belief. That's one of the tactics that you want to use to get you from 0% belief to like 20% belief. It's probably not going to be nearly as effective to get somebody from 80 to 100% belief. <laughs> no, they're probably only going to do that themselves. You're right. Yeah. No. And again, also very skillful, right? Like when the dwarves who are loud and direct and skeptical and binary, when they're questioning whether Bilbo belongs, Gandalf is loud and direct and binary. He's like, no. <laughs> You are wrong, and I am right, and he belongs, right? But when Bilbo, who is sort of iterative and waffling and quiet and sensitive, when he's waffling later on the chair in front of the fire, Gandalf is much more quiet and sensitive with him. He's like, really? Is this all you want? You're going to hang out here with your lace doilies and your grandmother's china? Like, come on. You know that that's not right. Like, he challenges him. He plants the seed and then he walks away, right? And yeah. so he really, he deploys both of those techniques because they're appropriate for the audience. Oh, man. Okay, so here's another tactic, and it'll come around. So this tactic that we see with Bilbo to incrementally grow belief. So we see him in the troll example, our mountaintop. As we're coming down from the mountain, let's reflect on where we've been. He sees an, a vacuum. The dwarves are not capable of going and trying to get the ponies back. The dwarves are not capable of tactfully handling the situation and navigating and getting them back to dawn where the trolls are going to become stone. He sees a vacuum and he recognizes his gifts and he doesn't have to have 100% belief. He just tries throwing something into the vacuum. He says, throwing himself into the vacuum. He sees the vacuum and he puts himself into it and he tests something out, right? He runs a prototype. And then we see it again. He uses that belief. He builds up maybe 5% belief with each time he does that. And then he has the interaction with Gollum and Smeagol. And he does it again because now he started to believe in that gift that he has with his words and with his wit. And so he's willing to leverage it again. And his belief builds up in himself. And he says, hey, now that jump start that Gandalf gave him that he has a specific role to play and it's important and he has gifts and skills, he starts to believe in that. And he tests that. And when he does, he grows by five and 10 and one and 2% throughout it, right? And isn't it the same exact thing as what Gandalf did almost at a meta level? You're recognizing that there is a vacuum of belief and you're putting something into that vacuum. It's just the tactic to put something into the vacuum is different because Gandalf has a specific skill set and a specific level of trust and weight that he carries. Weight was the perfect word there, Brian. He has this weight, and so he can put something huge right into the vacuum and say, I'm just filling that vacuum for you. And if you're Bilbo in this scenario, he's going to put maybe little objects into the vacuum first and test it, right? He's like, oh, there's like a wormhole here. Like, I wonder if it'll come out the other side. Yeah, no, I like that the vacuum analogy is cool because it's a it's a more visual way of thinking about something than opportunity. And to be fair, right, the the reason that Bilbo has any of these opportunities, you know, they're all pretty desperate. They're all really bad situations. And the only reason he learns how to do these things is because he's forced to, because otherwise he's going to be, you know, eaten by trolls or whatever. Right. So, you know, that's part of this. That's part of this journey is right. He would never learn those things. He would never have those opportunities. He would never be forced to develop those skills at home. He had to get out of his comfort zone. He had to be in mortal danger to be able to discover those things with themselves. And that's one of the oldest cliches about any sort of adventure movie, right? But it's still a real thing, right? Is putting yourself in the uncomfortable situation, 
having just enough belief to get out of the comfort zone and like, I've got enough hope to go try this thing and I will develop the skills that I need to as the challenges arise. That's required for the journey. That's required to build yourself into a skillful member of the team or a magnanimous leader or whatever your aspirations are. Yeah, the vacuum is very uncomfortable. Yes, it's That's, terrible. It's terrible, yeah, especially if the if the other side of it is utter failure. If the other side of it is death of your personal career, or death of your you know mortal embarrassment, or whatever you whatever you fear most, right? Looking stupid in front of other people is my personal. <laughs> that vacuum is oh man, that that vacuum is what drives a lot of the hero's journey forward. We've talked about in the past couple episodes how sacrifice kind of bridges the expanse in terms of completing the loop for us in terms of growth. And I think part of that loop is eventually you run into vacuums in the loop, and that can be a number of different types of vacuums. It could be a vacuum of knowledge, a vacuum of belief, sometimes some combination of the two. But what we're seeing here with Bilbo and the unexpected journey is you got to navigate vacuums. That's my biggest takeaway here is leverage the vacuums. When you find the vacuum, there will be discomfort figure out how to use that vacuum instead of just looking out over this vast expanse of nothing and saying, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that this is good because we are seeing, Bilbo as a character, we're seeing at the beginning of a journey. We're seeing what it looks like when you're not already a superhero, right? This isn't even an origin story. Like, he doesn't turn into Superman. Right? <laughs> He's not turning into Doctor Strange. He's Bilbo. He's a hobbit. And so the beginning of that journey of discovery and figuring out how to contribute and the idea that we need more and more of that, we need everybody to be on a journey of discovery and contribution and providing small, kind, orderly value in the world. That's really the job of the leader is not just to find and nurture the Supermans and the Doctor Stranges, but to find and nurture the Bilbos. What's that experience like? That is, a, I think, a piece of the leader's journey that we need to pay attention to. Ooh, that was a whirlwind, Brian. We can wrap up some key takeaways here. Let's just focus on, since we hit so much stuff, the mechanics of hope and belief. So we said hope is having an aspiration for the future to hold on to without being able to see it in fine granularity. We said belief is having a strong conviction on something you can't necessarily see or confirm. And we said the connection between the two of those is that when you have hope, belief kind of links up to that unconfirmed path that mystery of hope that you have and belief is latching onto that, that vacuum that you see where you have hope, you know there's another side of it, but you don't know exactly how you get across this vacuum and that iterative belief is kind of filling in that vacuum and we see how Bilbo is able to navigate that both from within and from without, right? He has Gandalf to push him off the ledge sometimes into the expanse and tell him he can do it. And other times he runs experiments where, yeah, he finds himself at the edge of the abyss. He says, well, I have to try something. So let me leverage what I do have. Yep. Love it. Thank you for wrapping it up that way. That's really great. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for The Hobbit's Unexpected Journey. We hope you really enjoyed going on the journey with us. Tune in next time and we will be joined by our special guest, Derek Cobb, climbing back out of his pit to join us for The Dark Knight Rises. And with that, we'll look forward to seeing you all next time. Take care of yourselves. And just remember, as always, character is destiny.